Thank you, Sister Jan, for that song. That's a message in itself. That this group of ladies would pledge from here on. Never let the Lord have to say that to us. I miss my time with you. The state of the Wisconsin would see a mighty revival. Like we've never seen before. They're having a revival in Stockton, California. I don't know if you read. Was that in the Herald? The wonderful episode that's been going on in Stockton, California, where people called for prayer and they were healed. They have a radio station, which we don't have. But they heard him praying over the radio station. It was marvelous how God did move. And that only came by prayer and fasting. Do we really want revival in Wisconsin? We're having revival to a certain extent. How many here have just been in the church five years that are in this audience? Let me see your hands. Shall I come back down? How many have been here? Well, I'll say ten years. Two years. One year. All right, we have some one year. Someone told me, they said, you have a different group of ladies than any other place because constantly you're having new people come, more so than years in Pentecost. How many have been in the church? Fifteen years. Between ten and fifteen. How many? Fifteen to twenty years. How many? Twenty-five years. How many? Thirty years. You might come in between there. I see some good old souls. I see Sister Matson right through here. Jan's mother. She's been around. How many years, Sister Matson? All right. We're thankful for it. Sister Showalter, how many years? 42 years. God bless I, our ladies that are older like me. But you see, we still haven't given up. We're still holding on, Sister Jessie. And we're going to hold on, Sister Jessie, till Jesus comes. Sister LaJoyce Martin is coming next. And she said, she's going to, what she's going to do to us this double afternoon? Whammy. She's going to give us a double whammy. And she is. Lord bless her. Praise the Lord. Now, maybe you've faced a time in your life when you feel like God lost your address, forgot your phone number. I've been there. At such a time, God gave me a song. I hope nobody panics. I can't sing. But you got to hear the words to this song God gave me. Now, the church we've pastored, I don't remember ever, ever singing a solo. Ever. So don't tell them. I got up here and made a fool out of myself in Wisconsin. Besides, I got a cold if I could even sing. But the Lord said, sing it, so we're going to croak it. Jesus carefully weighs each trial. Knowing how much I can bear Promising faithfully all of the while I'll never have more than my share All my tomorrows must pass by the Lord before they come to me All my tomorrows Must pass by the Lord From here to eternity Sorrows must pass His measuring rule as well as each heartache and tear. Oh, this is my weapon against 
Satan's tool of uncertain tomorrows I fear. Oh, hallelujah! All my tomorrows have got to pass by the Lord before they can come to me. Oh, yes! All my tomorrows must pass by the Lord from here to eternity. Now, I like this verse. Sickness and death must pass His test before they are placed upon me. Oh, hallelujah! In His sweet promise, my heart can rest. I won't put too much upon Thee. Lord, before they can come to me, oh yes, all my tomorrows must pass by the Lord from here to eternity. My tomorrow passed before the Lord. And what do you hold in your span, the Lord asked. A trial, tomorrow see it. Then wait. I've got to weigh it and make sure it's not too heavy. I must measure it and see that it's not too long. For you see, I promised my children I'd never put more upon them than they're able to bear. And have you any joy to take along? The master asked. My tomorrow just hung its head. Then you cannot go until you can take a long enough joy to make tomorrow worth living. And what about grace? Here, take some of my own grace, for I promise grace is sufficient to meet the needs of the pilgrim journey all the way from us to glory. <laughs> oh, so you see, if Jesus delays his coming and my tomorrow gets here, I don't have to worry. I don't have to fret. I don't have to fear because, oh my. Tomorrow's must pass by the Lord before they can come to me. Oh, yes, hallelujah! All my tomorrows must pass by the Lord from here to eternity. That's what he told me. Reading a couple of scriptures, Matthew 21, 12 and 13. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. I read that verse and it shocked me because I couldn't imagine the meek and lowly Nazarene kicking tables, flailing a whip, and yelling, get this stuff out of here. My house is not a swap shop or a flea market. And I got to looking closer. Lord, why did you get so angry? We've never known you to be so angry. This is an outburst that there's nothing else like in the Bible. And I learned that the reason he was so mad was because they were using his house for something it never was, had never been intended to be used for. Now that temple in Jerusalem was his temple then, but this is his temple now. This is the house of prayer now. Now, maybe you've always lived in a house. I haven't. For the first 15 years of my married life, I never lived in a house. I lived in attics and basements and travel trailers and trailer houses and you name it. I lived there. Once, I lived two years in the back of a church. Our travel... Uh, when we lived in the back of the church, we just 
didn't have any furniture. We just gathered up stray furniture from everywhere. And, and my first child was born when I lived in the back of this church for two years. Oh, I just thought that was heavenly to get to live in the back of a church in Sunday school rooms or whatever. And uh, we lived there two years. And uh, I had my first child. And we had this old uh, Naga Hyde um, recliner. And it vibrated. And I remember when he got old enough to crawl that we'd have guests and then sit down in the recliner and he would sneak over and he would turn the vibrator on and jiggle the money out of their pockets. We trained him to do that. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> and we'd find money under the chair when they were gone. <laughs> but then, I told you that we had this little travel trailer that was 15 feet on the inside. My children didn't know what it was to sleep in a bed unless they went to Grandma's house. Um, they have slept everywhere. Uh, we, uh, you know, put them in dresser drawers at the motel rooms if, if you know, if we didn't have anything else. Um, they slept on one. I put one of them on a piano bench one time for a whole revival, and uh, one time we put one of them in the oven, but we didn't turn it on. Um, we just had, you know, you just kind of do the best you can, and. Uh, my son slept under the table. We had one of these tables that pull up like this, and it had a leg that held it up, you know, this prop-up leg. And he'd roll over every night and knock the leg out, and the table would hit him on the head. And he says that that's the reason his brains are not more functional today. I told him one excuse is as good as another. But for 15 years, I didn't live in a house. And then we... Uh, this, this little trailer that we had... Let me tell you about this little trailer. Um, this little trailer... It had this little tiny bathroom, and you had to stick your head in the bathroom to brush your teeth. And the rest of you stuck out. And if you tried to get in the shower, just don't drop the soap because you get stuck if you reach down and try to get the soap. And one time, somebody gave my son a chicken, of all things, and he was uh, raising the chicken in the shower. So we went to church with a foul smell, of course. And... Uh, I talk, tried to talk him into, you know, let's get rid of the chicken and get a goldfish. Um, well, that worked pretty good till we set the goldfish bowl down in the sink. And when we got where we were going one time, the soap had fell in with the goldfish and he was looking out through the bubbles. And even I decided even goldfish, you know. So we, we just did whatever we could, but I didn't have a house. But then, after I'd been married 15 years... We took a church. We settled down. We traveled for nine years. And then we settled down, and my husband built me a home. This home was so big. Looking back now, I think it might not have been that big. But it, it looked so huge to me that I told people, I said, Now, if, if you come to my house and you found, find me huddled in the washroom, you'll know that I am terrified of this space. And it, it, was, it was lovely. And I just couldn't wait to get a home so that I could invite my friends in or, or people in. Since I wanted to... You know, I, all these nine years, I hadn't got to have guests or anything, so I just couldn't wait. So I remember the first bunch full of people came before we even got the carpets down. We had just got the bed in that day, I think, and just hadn't got the carpets down, and we were so glad to see people and be able, you know, just to fellowship that uh, they stayed a couple of days, and, oh, we just had so much fun. It was just so much fun. Well, then they had hardly left till the next bunch full came, and they stayed two weeks. And then when they left, they left a bunch of their stuff there in boxes and stuff. They were newlyweds, and, and they were going to get them a place or something. I don't know what. And anyway, the next bunch full that came, uh, it was just one person uh, for a while, and then they brought in others, uh, stayed for two years. Now, I'm not kidding. And so uh, finally, well, these people that were staying with us, then we took in a foster girl. Uh, uh, her mother was in the hospital, and her daddy was in the hospital at the same time, so we took her. And so by this time... All of our guests were inviting their guests in. And so I finally, one day I just had it up to here. I really had. And so I, I went to the, the three children that I had, and I said, look. I said, uh, we're going to run away from home. I said, um, now, get your stuff packed in the little duffel bag, in a little duffel bag, and throw it out the back window. Just stick it out the back window, and Daddy will come by and pick it up and put it in the car when nobody's looking. And we're all going to run away from home, our whole family. So oh, they thought that was so much fun, so they packed their little bags and they dropped it out the back window and Daddy went around behind the house and got all of the bags and snuck it in the car and when nobody was looking, well, we slipped out of the house, we went to the lake, we, had, we stayed all day long, we had a blast. And when we come back, I don't think anybody even missed us. But I enjoyed my house. What I want to talk about tonight now is 
uh, today is this house of prayer. Now, I hadn't read the book, The House of Prayer, so I, I don't know if I'm saying the same thing the book says or not. It doesn't matter because I haven't even read it. But um, this house of prayer uh, has rooms in it. And in the living room, this is what I call our prayer where all of us gather together. That's like our gatherings together here, you know. Our family, oh, you have so much fun. You have fellowship and people come to see you. and You have such communion and everything. In the living room, it's, it's kind of a group type prayer. But that's not the only dimension there is to prayer. Then you have what I call the, the dining room kitchen prayer. This is where your family, you know, gets together and... Uh, has their meals and refreshes herself and everything. And this is a real nice, you should pray with your family. Then there's the den prayer. You know, you're getting a little cozier and a little cozier all the time. But that's not even the dimension I want to talk about today. What I want to talk about today is the prayer closet. That's where you're alone with God. And that's where there's no room for any other. And sometimes... You know, you go through the rest of the house to get to the closet. Sometimes you just want to crawl in the back window and go straight to the closet. This closet of prayer is a place of intercession. Now, a closet is not an ornate place. Uh, Usually doesn't have any windows. It's secluded. It's confined. And you don't usually put your prettiest wallpaper in your closet. You know, you don't go down to the store and say, Well, I'm I'm buying this beautiful wallpaper to wallpaper the inside of my closet. And sometimes a closet smells like mothballs and old shoes. Most of the time, it's not on your cleaning priority list. You don't go, if somebody calls you and says, I'll be to your house in a few minutes, you don't run to the closet and start cleaning the closet. I mean, if you're like me, you know, you grab the newspapers and stuff them under the sofa and, and uh, sweep all the dirt under the... Don't tell me nobody does that but me. <laughs> I know you all do that. You're just pretending you don't. Now, there's no telling what you'll find in a closet. I had three kids, and one of mine, oh, she was a neat nick. I mean, you could go to her closet, and everything was in A, B, C, D, E, F, G order. And, you know, the blue skirts here, and the, the dress-ups here, and the jeans, jean skirts here, and, and the various things. And she had everything, and her, her, her shoes were marked and color-coded, and all of this good jazz. And uh, so... You know, she was just a real neatnik. It just made me sick. And then uh, I had another one, and her closet, it wouldn't have passed government inspection by any matter of means, but it, you know, it wasn't too bad. But then I had a boy. Have you ever looked inside a boy's closet? Don't. I did one day, and what I found was a live, four-legged turkey. With my hand up, I promise, I'm telling the truth. My husband worked part-time at a turkey farm, turkey hatchery, and every once in a while they'd hatch out a turkey that had four legs. And he had brought one home. And my son took it upon himself to raise the crazy thing in his closet in a shoebox. What time he didn't have it in his pocket, stroking its head and taking it to school with him. But a closet is not a display area. It's not something that if company comes, you meet them at the door and say, Oh, please, come and see my closet. Hey, if you come to my house, I'm probably going to say, Please don't go look at my closet. Most of the time we'd rather people didn't see in our closet. Now, there's various ways of entering the prayer closet. Uh, first way is voluntary. You know, we can say, I need to get myself to the prayer closet and agonize today. But who wants to agonize? You know, how many of us is just going to say, you know, get yourself on your face and start your agonizing? Not many, I'm afraid. So there's not too many volunteers to the prayer closet. There's another way to get to the prayer closet, and that's by invitation. The Lord sends you a note and says, Dear child, please meet me in the prayer closet at 2 o'clock. I need to have a little talk with you. Well, sure, Lord, I'll be there. Two o'clock, sitting in Brahms, 31 flavors, eating a yogurt banana split to save calories. Look at your watch, 
it's 2 o'clock oh I had an appointment with the Lord today in the prayer closet oh Lord I forgot I'm sorry Lord you're going to have to excuse me today would you run that invitation by sometime later and sometimes even by invitation we don't go to the prayer closet but there's a third way honey you're going to get there if you go this way and that's through necessity through necessity if you've never been in the prayer closet one of these days you'll get there if you're a child of God I will never forget the day God slammed me in the prayer closet and closed the door it was May the 13th 1985 I had been to the hospital um, doing my little little beauty as a pastor's wife visiting a lady who was dying for some reason she tried to get up I don't know why she tried to get up she probably didn't know she's out of it and I saw her falling and I knew her little head was going to hit on the cement floor so I just reached around and lifted her all the way back up onto the bed and blew three discs in my back away I was determined to keep going anyway so I, I, I did just sheer grit and determination I was giving a Bible study and I was almost to the Holy Ghost lesson and it was to a, a real sweet Baptist lady and uh, I was determined to give that lesson so that morning I got up and I realized that I was couldn't sit up but I realized it was so painful and I cried while I fixed my hair but I went on to that Bible lesson and gave her the Holy Ghost lesson and I will say she did get the Holy Ghost and uh, uh, sometime during this it just fogs my memory just fogs I was in so much pain but sometime during this time I, I, I was so blinded by pain I hit a parked car and uh, but I got back home the 13th day of May 1985 was my middle child was a girl 16th birthday and I told my husband I said honey go ahead and take her she was having a wiener roast to celebrate her 16th birthday with the other young people out to the lake and I said go with her and uh, I've got to go to the church so he did and I told one of the ladies in the church one of the ladies I said please take me to the church and just put me out and leave me she got me in her station wagon I think I crawled in and she took me to the church and she left me I guess I'd been there maybe five or six hours oh I, I probably wasn't that long all of a sudden the back door flew open and it was my son he was the music director about 150 miles or so away and uh, he came running in and he said oh mom I know I'd find you here he said God God let me know where you was and he said uh, I have come he said I drove 90 miles an hour to get here now that wasn't anything unusual really uh, but it, it sounded good and uh, he said I drove 90 miles an hour to get to you to tell you that God has told me he's going to heal you I thought oh thank you Jesus I'm going to get my healing so I got up I was I was just plastered across the altar and I got up and tried to make some laps around the building it didn't work so my son went to the piano and he began to sing and play and speak in tongues I thought that God was fixing to get me out of the prayer closet I didn't know he had just slammed the door and took the key and walked off I thought he meant he was going to get me out now I didn't know it would be 66 days later I got tired after a few days of being in the prayer closet got real, real tired real upset so I said uh, God get me out of here he didn't say a word I said okay God if you don't get me out of here I'm going to suffocate he didn't say anything I said God I'm taking claustrophobia here this is my spirit talking he said nothing okay God I'll just die in here that's what I'm waiting on While I was in the prayer closet, I'd been there, oh, maybe a couple of months. And my husband finally had to take me to my mom, 90 miles away, and put me in her floor on my hands and knees so that he could 
take care of the church, take care of the rest of the kids, try to do something about making a living. And he had just taken me, oh, maybe, maybe he'd been gone a couple of three days. He had taken me a couple of three days. And I was, it was about midnight one night. And the telephone rang. And my mom took the phone around the corner so I couldn't hear. My dad was in another room. And it tried to keep me from hearing what was going on. Finally, when they hung up, Dad came. He's an old-time preacher man, and he sat on the quilt box across the bed from where I was in the floor. And he kind of made a point to his nose like this. This is the way he does when he wants to say something. And I knew he had something to say. I didn't let him say it. I just looked at him. I said, okay, Dad, just tell me. Which one of my girls is dead? He said, Joycey. That's what he called me. He said, Joycey, they've been in a terrible car wreck. He said, one of them's going to make it. We don't know about the other one. They had started home from church on Saturday night, and I started down a, it was a big, wide, well-lighted street, and the 16-year-old that was driving had forgot to turn her lights on. So an old, a car had signaled her to turn her lights on. When she looked down to turn the lights on, she was going downhill anyway. When she looked down to turn her lights on, when she looked up, she looked the car in front of her. So she jerked the wheel, and when she did, she put herself into a spiral she couldn't come out of. They went airborne, hit a curb, went airborne, hit a tree, broadside, the tree like six inches going halfway through the car. Her story's been picked up by a national magazine. I couldn't have gone to her funeral if she'd died. They called me. My husband called me and he said, the doctor came in and she's gone to no brain response. She was in a, a very deep coma, massive head injuries, hemorrhaging on both sides of her brain. Said she's gone to no brain response. Brain dead. When Dad told me, he expected me to scream and holler, I guess. Or act like a mother. I just looked at him and said, Dad. There's a reason for it, I guess. I don't know why everything has happened like it has, but if God wants my baby daughter... 14 years old. Let him take her. It'll just be another angel to sing in heaven's choir. Just let him do what he wants, Daddy. By this time I was so crushed in the prayer closet till nothing mattered anymore. He called me and he said, the doctor has come in and said that they're going to have to take her down to surgery. They're going to have to do something immediately because she's losing those vital fluids. Her brain is deteriorating. And they just have an hour or so they've got to do something and uh, said within an hour they're going to take her down and said they say when they go into her head either they will lose her or she will be brain damaged. We don't know to what extent. I said, okay, okay. There was anything I could do. Not a thing. I was totally helpless on my hands and knees. And I'm not going to leave you here. I'm going to try to type all these ends before I get through. But I'm going to go on, and, and I'll, I'll pick up my story as I go on. If you're a child of God and you've never been in the prayer closet, you will be. There'll come a time you'll be there. And I want to apprise you today of what to expect in the prayer closet. Of the things that's going to happen to you in that prayer closet. 
in that prayer cocoon, you will take on the spirit of the crucified Christ. You'll take on the attitudes he had and you will take on his cries that he cried from the cross. His first cry was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In the prayer closet you will learn to forgive. Forgiveness is expensive. It costs you something. You say, but they did me wrong. Of course. That's what forgiveness is all about. You don't have to forgive anybody for doing you right. Forgiveness is the highest form of love. But the day you stop forgiving is the day God stops forgiving you. If you've ever stopped forgiving all your sins from that day till this are on your soul and against your record. The disciples asked him, seven times a day? Oh no, he said, 70 times seven. Have you ever figured that up? I did. I figured it up. And if you sleep for eight hours, that's 35 times an hour. The other 16 hours you'd be forgiven. So forgiveness has got to reside with you. You don't have time to send it off and call it back and send it off and call it back. It's got to live with you. You have to have a forgiving spirit at all times. That's every other minute. You'd be forgiving every other minute of your waking time. If it's hard for you to forgive, maybe I could give you some helps. Accept the times of God in your life. You may look at somebody else and they're not going through what you're going through. But hey, they're on a different place on God's progress chart than you are. God knows what he's doing. And that's why the Bible says comparing ourselves with ourselves, we're not wise. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not the same place on God's progress chart that you are. He knows where I am and he knows where you are. He knows when to bless me and he knows when to correct me and he knows when to chastise me. And the Bible says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Rejoice in the Lord. Lord, you have me in this prayer closet for a reason, and I shall come forth as gold. Then he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the prayer closet, you will feel forsaken. I remember the sheer loneliness of those days. Nobody understood me. Nobody could. They weren't in the prayer closet with me. Life just kind of went on as usual. I remember a young lady talking to me one time and she said her daddy was dying in the hospital and she walked out and the sun was shining and people were laughing and cars were going. And she said, world, how can you go on when my daddy is dying? Nobody understood. And I remember laying there uh, in the floor on my hands and knees. I remember everybody was packing to go camp but me. That was the loneliest feeling. I never missed camp. It got so lonely and so dark during those days that I asked God for just a rainbow. God, could I have just a ray of light in this dark place? And I'll never forget the telephone rang. One day it was dear old Sister Freeman called to me. Another day a lady called me and she said, it's not the end of the road for you, Sister Martin. It's just a bend in the road. And God would just send a little ray of light when I asked him for the rainbows. Oh, so very lonely. Then he said, Woman, behold thy son. He was pointing his mother to John. In the prayer closet there's no room for self-pity. Jesus was concerned about the care of his mother. He was looking to the needs of others. He was caring and compassionate and tender. Ecclesiastes tells us to cast our bread upon the waters. That's our very life. Sometimes we feel like everything is gone. We've given out everything there is to give. But keep giving. Keep giving in the prayer closet. Then he said, 
Behold thy mother. He looked to John and he realized he was fixing to go. And somebody, he was going to have to take the responsibility of turning his responsibility to somebody else. And so in the prayer closet is a willingness to take responsibility. Jesus didn't use his pain as an excuse or a cop-out. He didn't forsake his responsibility even though he was in great pain. Even though he suffered rejection and shortness of time. In the prayer closet we've got to do our duty against all odds. And sometimes the odds are ins- seem insurmountable. It's not what's good for me, but what's good for the cause. A total selflessness must take over in the prayer closet. Then he said, today thou will be with me in paradise. He was talking to a lost soul. We've got to be an intercessor and reach for souls even when we're in our prayer closet. You know, we have a tendency to get in the corner and lick our wounds and say, they've hurt me. Just let them hope it for themselves. But even after those personal insults, you know, this thief was casting his teeth in the same as the rest of them, jeering and mocking. But when he asked Jesus for help, Jesus reached him with those life-giving words. Today, thou wilt be with me in paradise. Then Jesus said, I thirst. In the prayer closet, we develop a continual thirst for God. Job in his prayer closet said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. When the spirit of intercession takes over and you're locked in that prayer closet, the closet will take on a magnetic drawing akin to thirst. Oh, God, I've got to have you. Oh, God, I've got to have an answer. Oh, God, I have to have you. Then he said, it's finished. In the prayer closet we surrender. At last. Like Esther, if I perish, I perish. I remember I I got to that point and God sent an old minister. He was so ancient. He he had been the evangelist when my daddy came into the church. And I guess he was still alive just to come to me. Because he died a little, uh, not too long thereafter. But he came and he had the audacity to tell me that my will had to be broken. He looked right at me and he said, You are a strong-willed person, and your will has got to go. Yes, Lord. I surrender. Lord, this me is finished. This me is all gone. Just before the accident, Lamont went to the church, and he said, God, you and I are friends. We've always been friends and we're always going to be friends if you take my wife and all. There to support my husband. I wasn't there. I was 90 miles away on the floor. The people got down and I had an old neighbor man who was 70 years old and had never prayed one prayer in his life. Never uttered a prayer in his life. He said, I don't know how to pray. I've never prayed in my life. But I don't want Bethany to die, so I'm going to try he got down. They said there was an atheist. Somebody told me there was an atheist over in the corner and he put his face in the corner and began to weep. One hour later, the surgeon came back and he said, Reverend Martin, we didn't go into her head. Something has happened. And she is stabilized back to the point she was when she first came in. We do have some brain response. She does, you know, when you prick her with a pen and all this, she does... It shows on the monitors that she has some brain response. Fourteen days she lay like this. Left her side except to go change his clothes. On that day he went to God and he said, God, whatever you want for us, that's fine. On that day, he went to God and he said, God, whatever you want for us, that's fine. If you want to take her, take her. 
if you want her to be severely brain damaged and us take care of her in a vegetable state the rest of her life, we'll be glad to do that if that's what you want. But God, I'm asking you one thing. Don't let her be brain damaged and know that she's brain damaged to the fact that it bothers her so that she can't live with it. Either take her or let her be so brain damaged she doesn't know it. He said, but God, if you're going to heal her, I want to know it. I want to know it now. So he got right up beside her and he took her hand. She hadn't moved. It was just limp. He took her hand. He got right up in her ear and he said, Bethany, Daddy's going to pray for you. She opened her eyes and looked at him and for one hour she prayed with him. Then she went right back into the coma. The doctors and nurses come in and my husband said, she's been awake and she's been praying with me. <laughs> they think daddy's hallucinating. <laughs> this daddy has flipped out. He's been here too long. <laughs> None of them believed him. <laughs> but he knew that was his sign. God is going to heal my daughter. On the 14th day, now, all in her hair was blood and glass and all this mess. They didn't even know if they could save one of her eyes. And to look at her today, her, her picture is in this magazine. Uh, a national magazine picked up her story, run her story and her picture. And uh, you would never tell. This is after the wreck. You could never tell in this picture she's ever been injured. Uh, but on that 14th day, uh, they had begged Brother Martin to please let them cut her hair because it was so matted. He said, oh, please don't. He said, she has never had scissors in her hair. And if she wakes up and finds her hair gone, it will be a more trauma to her than the wreck itself. She was a very conscientious little girl. When she was 11 years old, she'd get up before daylight and go to the church and pray an hour before she went to school. She read her Bible through every year, I guess. And she was so on fire for God. So they agreed not to cut her hair. And various ones that would come in would just part it off as best they could when she got to work. You know, they could work with it at all. And they would just fix it in little pigtails everywhere. So she had pigtails everywhere. And when they would get this much done, they would put a rubber band around it to keep that one from coming loose so we don't have to fight this battle again, see? So all over her hair was these, just these little pigtails. So one night, during the middle of the night, the 14th night, all of a sudden, she snapped crystal clear consciousness and saw that rubber band laying on her pillow and thought it was a bug and jumped out of bed and pulled the driggins out of her nose and out of her uh, her tubing out and she started towards her dad's bed he, they told him never to leave her and he was on the other bed and he just reached out his arms she was falling just reached out his arms and took her in his arms and said Bethany it's alright hon we're in the hospital you've been in a wreck everything's going to be alright and he called the nurse. And the nurse says, well, says, uh, I tell you what, said, let's see if we can leave the tube, tubes out. I uh, said, I tell you what we'll do, we'll bring her um, a bowl of cereal and a spoon and some milk. Well, she just picked up the spoon, ate the whole bowl of cereal, and, you know, so they said, well, um, that's going to be a long time, long time before uh, she'll be able to go to school or anything, you know, and we don't know what damage we got here, and we're going to really have to work with her. So they took her down, and they had her walk this board thing, you know, and she just walked up there and walked back. So they said, oh, oh, well, said, we better bring out the books. So they brought her the first grade book, and she just read it, and brought her a second grade book, and she read it, and she read through second year college. <laughs> oh, honey, when you come out of that prayer closet, you come out with victory, you come out with miracles, you come out with glory, you come out with answers. Oh, don't faint. Don't faint. When you come out, you're going to have the victory. He 
Hannah has one verse in the Bible. It's her prayer closet verse and ten victory verses. Ten to one. Oh, that's what I feel like I've got. Oh, the victory side of intercession. It's sweet release. It's restoration. It's healing. Now, I, I'm going I'm to sound like a bragging mama, but please don't take it that way. I'm giving glory to God. Bethany has just had her 21st birthday. She graduated from college at age 20, and in the business law club of her school, she was a national merit finalist, the only one that had ever gone to her college with this kind of grades. They threw a big, the president of the college threw a big dinner just for Bethany. They, uh, the business law club s sent her to take the business law test on a state level. And she came out first in the state of Oklahoma. They said, okay, let's send her to national. They sent her to Anaheim, California last July on the, would it have been? She told, she, she gave a marvelous testimony about this on the anniversary. It was on the anniversary of the wreck. She was in Anaheim, California. And she took the test on a national level and placed second in the United States of America. But if I hadn't been in the prayer closet, I might not have had a daughter today. I may not have even had a daughter today. Now this verse that I read, where God drove them all out, the verse that follows says, and when the temple was cleansed, and when the temple was cleansed and restored to its rightful purpose, this is what it says about it, and the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When we get everything out of this temple, everything out, get it cleansed, get it where God wants it, there'll be healing and restoration. Oh, and he healed them. Okay, so what happened to me? So here I am, on my hands and knees, and one night I got a telephone call from Brother Urshan's son-in-law, and he said, uh, uh, he called me Sister Little Joyce, he said, uh, I was praying, it was on a 20th day of a 21 day fast and he said I was praying and he said God showed me a vision of your back he said one disc is uh, damaged one is uh, herniated and one is completely gone I had been rode on my hands and knees all the way to Houston went through a CAT scan and this is basically exactly what the CAT scan showed he said but Sister LaJoyce he said uh, where that disc is gone God has planted a little seed and it's going to begin to grow. He said it will not be an immediate healing, but it's going to grow. He said, and just to prove to you that God is going to do this, you're going to crawl up on the bed tonight and you are going to sleep. I thought, sleep? After all these months, I crawled up on the bed and slept five hours without waking up. But at the end of his conversation, he began to speak in tongues and prophesy over the phone. And he said, Sister LaJoyce, God has a ministry for you. I said, okay, God, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I promise anything. Just get me up. And that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. This has just started in the last few years because I made that commitment to God. So I have to go wherever he sends me, be it Australia, be it Alaska. And my husband understands this, and he's very willing for me to go, because he knows that without God, I still, I can't really stand up straight. If you'll notice, I cannot stand up straight, but I don't hurt. I told the minister that called me, I said, but I have an appointment with the back surgeon next week. He said, that don't matter. Go ahead to your appointment. He's not going to operate on you. I was just sure he was. So I went on to my appointment. It was a top back surgeon. And he looked at me and he said, I don't want to operate on your back. And you don't want me to. 
He said, at best, we'd have scar tissue, you'd have problems the rest of your life. He said, I'm going to just send you home and put you to bed with a very strong medication because you need rest so badly. And he put me to bed, give me some knockout medicine, I guess. I got back healed. And I'm here to tell of God's goodness. My Bethany walked out of the hospital with all her bouquets the 21st day. Went back to school. This, this, she's been our sunshine. But on March the 25th, 1990, my husband got up and preached a message I'll never forget as long as I live. preach about Job only he wasn't preaching I'd never heard anything like it it was like talking to us he said okay he said now I want to talk to you tonight he said whatever happens in the next few days I want you just to thank God for it just simply thank God for it whatever it is and he started talking about Job I says, oh, Lord, now don't job me again. I've been jobbed enough. You know, go job somebody else a while. He had us right out here at the cemetery with Job, looking at the graves. And Job was saying, you know, this is not the exact words he said, but this is like, you know, this is the way it come across to me. And Job was looking at the graves and said, well, thank you, God, for zapping out all my kids, you know. And thank you for all these graves here, and thank you for... You do things all right, and uh, I just appreciate, you know, all these deaths. I said, no, Lord, no. Not again. The next night, I went down to church, and I was trying to help some new converts. Snitching all this lady's Kleenexes. Next night I was down at the church and I was working with some new converts and people was trying to get established and I, I told them, I told the lady, I said, something's fixing to happen and I don't know what it is. I said, but you know, God sees from the top side and I'm looking from the bottom side and I can't see the nose in front of my face, but he knows. She said, yeah. So I went home. I sat down beside my husband and I said, honey, Something is fixing to happen. He said, I know, I know. He said, but don't worry about it. Just thank God for whatever happens. That was Monday night. Tuesday morning there came a knock at my door. The man from the church. He said, Sister Martin, where's Bethany? And I said, I thought he already know. I said, she's at school college. He said, when will she be home? I thought he ought to know that too. I said, when school's out. He said, well, now, now don't panic. You know, and, and, and if anybody don't you panic, that, that's the thing they shouldn't say. You know, you just automatic, that's the trigger, you know, panic. He said, now don't panic, Sister Martin, but your husband has been in a terrible accident. He's been hit head on with a big oil field tank truck. It come right into his lane and got him. He had nowhere to go. I said, okay, just let me call mom and get her to pray and let me call Angela at TBC and get her started on the airplane home. He said, well, come on, go with us. And he was hurrying me. I says, I've got to get somebody started praying. He said, we don't know, you know. We don't know what all his injuries are. And I had to go by the little pickup truck that he was in on the way to the hospital. And the front was gone. There was no front. Up on the window, the windshield of the little pickup was the tire tracks of the big truck. We had taken the motor, the transmission, it took the whole front off. And you could just see the seats on one side, on the passenger side. 
So they took me to the hospital and they let me ride with him. They had to transfer him to the, a big hospital. And they let me ride with him. And that night again, God came to me. Brother Wayland, our district superintendent, came. And about 70 people came to be with me. And all during those long hours of surgery, Brother Wayland began to sing. We all went in the chapel and Brother Wayland began to sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." And once again I felt him just come to me and put his arms around me. We didn't know what would happen. The doctor didn't know if he could save his leg at all. He had to put it back together just like a jigsaw puzzle. But Brother Martin can walk today. He suffers. It's been almost two years. We have been in the prayer closet again. And a week from Monday, we have to go to court. I would please ask you to pray for us. The insurance company doesn't want to be fair. Our hospital bill is astronomical. I mean, all of our surgery and everything. But four weeks ago today, I got a strange telephone call from St. Francis Hospital. And the lady said to me, your husband is supposed to be here next week for a bone scan. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, uh, have you ever been a patient here before? And I said, oh, yes, ma'am, he's the one that was plastered by the big truck. She said, well, could you get me a social security number? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, where did this wreck happen? I said, if you'll let me go get the newspaper clipping, I'll, I'll tell you. I didn't know why she was asking all these questions. And she, I, I said, she said, oh, but isn't he fortunate to be alive? I said, Oh, yes, ma'am. I could be a widow today. She said, but God didn't mean for you to be a widow. She said, isn't God good? He wanted you to be a helpmate. I said, oh, yes, ma'am. And then for some reason, I don't even know why I said it. I said, ma'am, I said, I'm sorry. We haven't been able to pay our hospital bill. I said, the insurance, the trucking company's insurance has just never come through. They've just never paid us. I said, someday, as soon as they settle, I'm hoping that we can pay our bill off. And she said, Well, have we been sending you bills? And I said, I got thinking. I said, No, I guess not. And she said, Ma'am, we don't show that you owe anything. I don't know who paid it. I don't know how it got paid. But Mort is facing further surgeries. And I realize it's going to be put into the hands of a jury, and we are in a situation in Oklahoma. They do juries by driver's license, and the lawyer told me, he said, I hate so bad to see your case go before a jury because all we're getting now is teenage kids that think $10,000 is a windfall and uh, unemployed people, and uh, that's what we've been getting for juries, and uh, retired people, and that's what we've been getting for juries for the last two years. But if you'll pray, we'll get a good jury. If you'll pray, God's going to bring us out of this prayer closet for his glory. You had a nurse at the hospital. He had a nurse at the hospital, and the men in the church got together and prayed. They said, we are going to pray. This was in March, and, and Easter was in April. They said, we're going to pray that our pastor is back in church on Easter Sunday morning. And I told the nurse that. She said, oh, hallelujah, I'll pray with them. On Easter Sunday morning. I got to tell you this. I got to tell you this. This is part of the victory. And Brother Martin came too. <laughs> 
at the side of the wreck. It took him like an hour, to the jaws of life, to get him out. He was saying, thank you, Jesus, for this wreck. <laughs> thank you, Jesus, for all this pain. Thank you, Jesus, for all the trouble this is going to cause me. The sheriff, the county sheriff was standing there and he said, I think I could afford to sit under a man like that. And he gave the key to the county jail to one of the men in our church. He said, go get the prisoners out of jail and take them to your church. For one year, we got the prisoners. They never give us a minute's trouble. God touched them every time they come to church. On Easter Sunday morning, my husband came rolling down the aisle in the wheelchair with his hands raised to heaven singing this song, and it has become my favorite. This is my story. This is my song. 